Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4. We've been in this section of Luke for three weeks now. Verses 14 to 44, one unit of Luke's telling. If you remember, it starts with Jesus returning from the temptation and the power of the Spirit and a report going about him. He taught in the synagogues, being glorified by all. And then we saw one particular um, Sabbath, one Saturday, in Jesus' hometown in Nazareth, and he goes in, and all eyes are on him, and he picks up the scroll, and he reads it, and he reads Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to claim the year of the Lord's favor. A clear messianic text. You'll remember Messiah means anointed. Um, It's just a Hebrew word for anointed. Christ is the Greek word for anointed. So Messiah, Christ, and anointed are Hebrew, Greek, and English for the same thing. Jesus Christ is Jesus the Messiah, is Jesus the anointed. That's, that's the idea. And this passage begins, he that Jesus cites, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me and he's, he's commissioned this one to, to proclaim a message of good news. And our, our word gospel simply comes from the Greek word for good news, evangelion. So you could say, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, anointed me to gospelize or announce the gospel to the poor and to set and proclaim liberty to the captives, the recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. So Jesus reads this, and there's two parts to this mission. There's an announcing, but there's also a setting free. And so this one in Isaiah 61 is the one who will announce the good news and the freedom and the, the, the freeing of captives and the giving of sight to the blind, but also the one who will accomplish it. And the Jews, I'm sure, are familiar with this. This is one of the passages they were looking to, their great hope, as they are under the thumb of foreign ruler after foreign ruler after foreign ruler after foreign ruler. And Jesus rolls the scroll up and he puts it down. And all eyes, it says in verse 20, were upon him, fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I mean, thought of the audacity of Jesus, the bold audacity, because in saying that, he's, he's doing two things. One, he, he identified himself as the one this scripture is talking about. He is saying, I am that Messiah. I am that one whom the Lord has anointed to proclaim good news. I'm the one the Lord has anointed by his spirit to announce liberty to captives and sight to blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed. I'm the one who has been Received God's Spirit. Remember, chapter 4 begins right after Jesus receives the Holy Spirit. This, this passage begins in verse 14. Jesus returns in the power of the Spirit. And he cites this passage. He says, I am the one who's received the Spirit from God. I am the one who is the Messiah who's been commissioned to announce a message and to accomplish freedom. That's bold. But moreover, Jesus says to them, this passage has been fulfilled today in your hearing. And his audience was primarily looking for a geopolitical salvation. They were looking for someone who would come and overthrow the Romans, someone who would come and restore their prominence. And by saying this is fulfilled in your hearing, Jesus is basically saying to the audience in the synagogue, you, you all are blind, and you all are captives, and you all need to be freed and are poor. 
Because it says, in your hearing, this is accomplished. What he's saying is, in the very act of reading this passage, he is accomplishing this passage. And, and the people aren't as thrilled, just as you can imagine, to, to identify themselves as the poor, the oppressed, and the blind. And so there's a mixed, there's a mixed response. They, they recognize no one has spoken like this man. It says, gracious words are coming out of his mouth. And they also stumbled over his familiarity. This is, this is Jesus who grew up with us. And so Jesus presses the issue to a head. And he says to them, we saw this last week, doubtless she'll say to me, physician, heal yourself. Jesus recognizes that these people are demanding signs and miracles. And he basically answers them, God's in charge. And God decides how much evidence you get. And God decides where he sends his prophet. He cites two examples of, of Elijah being sent to the Syrophoenician widow and Elisha healing Naaman, the Syrian. In both cases, the point is, there were lots of widows. God sent a prophet to one. There were lots of lepers. God healed one. And the one God chose was a Gentile. The one God healed was a Gentile. And Jesus was telling them, look, you don't get to demand things of God. You don't get to demand when and where he shows up. He doesn't, you don't get to say, look, come on down here and talk to me. God chooses, and God sends his prophet where he will, and God doesn't, frankly, owe you anything. And that, that message went over about as popularly as it does today, and the people tried to kill Jesus. And Jesus walked out from their midst. Even though they'd seen the evidence of his words, they'd seen the evidence of him growing up in their midst, living a sinless life. I mean, can you imagine that, growing up in a town with a sinless young man, growing up in front of you? And yet they reject him. This morning, we're going to look at another Sabbath. Another Sabbath and a very different reception. And, and strangely, we're going to see the very signs that his hometown were demanding. We're going to see them. And we're going to see Jesus demonstrate the power and authority of his word. It's going to close out our section that, that's summarized by Jesus preaching and teaching in the synagogues. We've got two examples, one Sabbath and another Sabbath, and we're going to look today at another Sabbath, Christ's powerful and authoritative word. So let's read verses 31 through 44 of Luke chapter 4. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon, and he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have we to do with you? What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. And he rose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever and they appealed to him on her behalf, and he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. 
And the demons also came out, and many crying, You are the Son of God. But he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that he was the Christ. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place. And the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Wow, there's a lot going on in this passage. There's a lot of ways you could divide this up. I I thought it'd be helpful going through the text um, to take it by location. So we've got a section where Jesus is in the synagogue, right? And then in um, verse 38, he arose and he left the synagogue. And he enters into the community in Simon's house. And then as they bring their sick to him. And then in verse 42, Jesus changes location again. He goes out to a desolate place. And so we're going to walk through this passage in three steps. Jesus in the synagogue, Jesus in the community, Jesus in the wilderness. And in every place, what we're going to see, what we're going to look for, is the astonishing power and authority of his word. That's what we're going to see. If, if those in his hometown stumbled over who he was, Luke wants his readers to see this is the Lord's Christ. This is the Lord's Messiah. And this is the one with power and authority in his very word. So let's, let's dive in. Um, in the synagogue. And we're going to see this in three parts. First, a powerful teacher. A powerful teacher. And we see there's a change of location. He went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. And he was teaching them on the Sabbath, and they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. One of the things I'm thankful for in Scripture is that it's popular nowadays to think that unless you've studied all the ancient Near East backgrounds and understand everything, you can't possibly understand the Scripture. Luke, notice this, Luke does not assume his reader first in the first case, Theophilus, and then us beyond, is aware of all of that stuff because he helpfully tells us where Capernaum's located, city of Galilee. And so he, does, he invites us in and he tells us where Jesus moved. He goes down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching there on the Sabbath. We've already heard earlier in the book, in chapter four, that this was his custom. He, he customarily went into the synagogues and, and he taught. And here he is teaching. And we get the clue of what our theme is in this section because the response is they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Now, for those of us familiar with our New Testament, there's a deep irony here because Jesus, after all, according to John 1.1, 1, 1, is the word of God incarnate. He is the logos. And here is the one who is the word and the words he speak are powerful and authoritative. It astonishes his hearers. I mean, think about this. Someone who uses language perfectly, who understands what the text means perfectly, who communicates perfectly, who doesn't give man's opinions, he wasn't playing YouTube clips, he was teaching the word of God with authority and the people were astounded. They were absolutely astonished. They'd never heard anything like this. I'd go so far as to suggest this was the most perfect and powerful speech they had ever heard. And we're going to see just how powerful Jesus' word is in the, in the next coming verses, aren't we? Because he speaks to a demon, and he leaves, and he speaks to a fever, and the fever goes. And <laughs> Jesus' word has power, and he's teaching them. He's teaching them. His word possessed authority. We've talked about this before as well, that God's weapon of choice, his tool of choice, is language. 
You know, in Genesis 1, Moses tells us not only that God created the heavens and the earth, but he tells us how. And God didn't make a big machine and turn a crank, and out came the universe. God didn't perform a magic rite, use a wand. What did God do to make everything? He spoke. He spoke. So from the very first page of the Bible, one of the things we understand about the God to whom we have to do, the God who is, is this God who is speaks and his word is powerful. His word creates reality. In a very real sense, you and I are spoken people. Because Christ, according to Hebrews 1.3, upholds all things by the power of his word. We are made by divine speech. We are sustained by divine speech. And here is the one who is the word of God speaking and teaching and astonishing people with his authority. Astonishing people with authority. And then as Jesus is teaching on the Sabbath in the synagogue, there is a de- disruptive demon. A disruptive demon. Now, you know, I, I sometimes can think it's bad if a kid's crying or someone coughs, but I've never had a demon-possessed person interrupt the service before, and for that I am thankful. Um, by the way, notice that Satan never misses a worship service. I mean, he's, he's there. He's in the synagogue. Now, we, we don't know a ton about demon possession. Um, I, can, I can tell you that probably most of what's popularly known is wrong. Um, some, some people in the more liberal camps think that this is just a primitive idea, that, that the, what, what we, they didn't understand by medicine, they ascribed to demons. And so the notion was if you were sick, you had a demon. Well, that doesn't work because Luke's a doctor, and a little bit later in this chapter, Luke's going to separate those who are sick and those who had demons. He doesn't assume all disease is demonic. Another common assumption is that people are responsible. This, this guy is a demon. He must have done something to deserve it. Nowhere in Scripture that I read is anyone ever rebuked for having a demon, as if it's their fault, as if somehow they did something or participated in something or, or were born into a family that somehow made them susceptible. Nothing, nothing, nothing that suggests that. In all the popular literature, you get the idea that if you do certain things, well, then maybe you'll be possessed by a demon. I don't see anything in the Bible to support that idea. These people are the oppressed. Here's the point. Jesus just quoted Isaiah 61. He's going to free captives. He's going to set free those who are oppressed. Who is more oppressed than people under the sway and influence of demons? And this is, to be clear, a sentient being. Luke makes that clear. This is a real person inhabiting this person. He says in the text, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. This is a moral agent inside this man, an evil spirit. Now, we, we can sometimes stumble over this because we don't see much of this nowadays, and where it's claimed to be taking place, it's not terribly impressive. I think C.S. Lewis has a helpful quote on this point. Um, he said, there are two equal and opposite errors into which our race can fall about the devils. One is to disbelieve in their existence entirely. The other is to believe and to feel an excessive and unhealthy interest in them. They themselves are equally pleased with both errors and hail the materialist or the magician with the same delight. Which is to say, there's been times in our world's history, there are even places now in the world where the culture is obsessed with the occult and spirits and demons and, and, and things like that. We happen to live in a culture that's much more materialistic, doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. And both are erroneous. Although there's, a, there's an irony, isn't there, that those cultures that have witch doctors and have belief in spirits, in some senses, are more in line with reality than our more advanced cultures that don't believe in such 
foolishness, right? Isn't that kind of interesting that some of the more what we consider backwards or underdeveloped cultures in some senses are, there are spiritual forces. Now we're not to, we're not to court them, we're not to call on them, but they're there. They're there. They're here. Here's a man possessed of a demon in the synagogue and he interrupts and he cries out with a loud voice, the disruptive demon. We see three things from this demon about Christ. First, this demon feared Jesus' power and authority. He feared Jesus' power and authority. I mean, you get the basic idea. He recognizes who Jesus is, and he is not pleased. Ha, ah, what have we to do? What, basically, that, that phrase, what have you to do with us, is well, why are you here? We, we don't have any interaction. What, what are you doing here? Have you come here to destroy us? Now, notice he's only one, but we know later in the chapter that there's other demon-possessed people in the area, so this guy is apparently speaking for the group. What are you doing here? Have you come to destroy us? He recognizes Jesus has the power and the authority to destroy demons, right? That's what he's saying. He fears and recognizes Jesus' power and authority. How much power and authority does Jesus' word have? Well, clearly the demon thinks enough to destroy him. Enough to destroy him. In fact, a little later, and if you turn to Luke 10... We see this, this power and authority that Jesus has. It's not just an power and authority he has, but it's an power and authority he extends to his apostles. And the 72, in Luke chapter 10, verses 17, the 72 returned with joy, verse 17, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I've given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and all over the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So the, the, Jesus has that much power and authority. There's no contest. We oftentimes can think of wrongly the spiritual world as this battle, this tug of war, and maybe a chess game is another metaphor I've seen, or an arm wrestling match, and God's going to win, but it's going to be close. Right, you've seen that before. You know, it's, 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 the devil doesn't move and God does a counter move. And it's like, you know, that, that's not the picture at all. The, when the demons see Jesus, they just cower in fear. <laughs> Are you going to destroy us? And one day he will. And if you read the book of Revelation, Jesus shows up on his white horse with a robe dipped in blood. And what weapon does he use to defeat all of his enemies? He speaks. It's not much of a fight. God is sovereign. Jesus is in control of these things. Jesus is Lord. And they recognize it. They hate him. They're terrified of him. But there's no confusion on their part over who could destroy who. No confusion. Secondly, the demon confessed Jesus' deity. He confessed Jesus' deity. One of the striking things in the Gospels is that some of the clearest, most articulate, and unescapable declarations of the deity of Jesus are found in the lips of demoniacs. Certainly the earliest in these Gospels of, of declarations. You are the Holy One of God, verse 41. You are the Son of God, verse 30, 41 as well. They knew he was the Christ. It's interesting that, that those today who want to argue, Jesus never claimed to be God, Jesus never claimed, that's a, that's a later development, have, have worse theology than demons. 
The demons know who he is. You are the Holy One of God. This demon confesses his deity. That's the same phrase used in John 6. When Jesus starts teaching about eating his flesh, drinking his blood, and people are leaving in, in, in droves, and he turns to the disciples and he says, what, do you want to leave also? And Peter says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Would it take six chapters of John for Peter to come to believe? The demons already know. This is the Holy One of God. And again, knowing truth. This gets back to the point that knowing truth doesn't necessarily save. You've got to know truth to be saved, but you've got to embrace it with your will and with your heart and with your affections. You've got to love truth. The demons believe, James says, and tremble. The demons have very orthodox theology. I oftentimes hear people say, oh, this so-and-so is a Christian. Why? Well, they believe in God. That would qualify them to be a demon. But it needs to be more than that. Like, that's, that's, nece- that's a necessary step. Like, that's good. That's not nearly far enough. That's not nearly far enough. The demoniac here can confess, you're the Holy One of God. You're the Son of God. But I hate you. I'm terrified of you. I want nothing to do with you. But please don't destroy me. Third, he obeyed Jesus' rebuke. Three times in this passage, Jesus rebukes. In verse 35, Jesus rebuked him. In verse 39, Jesus rebuked the fever. In verse 41, Jesus rebukes another demon. And this is how powerful Jesus' word is. Evil spiritual beings who possess at least enough power. If you remember the book of Job, Satan was able to collapse the house of Job's sons. Is able to strike Job with disease. These are powerful beings. I don't know the limits of their power. They, they, they can do things. And Jesus just speaks and they obey. There's no, there's no fight. There's no, you know, there's no magic incantation. Jesus, you could think of Naaman last week. Jesus doesn't raise his hands over the place. You just get out of him. And this evil, demonic, fallen angel obeys. He obeys. That's power. That's power. There's no showdown. It's just Jesus speaks. The demon obeys. How powerful is Jesus' word? Powerful enough to command fallen angels, and they obey. They obey. A little later in Luke, in Luke 8, Jesus will rebuke the wind. Understand this. This is the one who created the world. This is the one who spoke into nothing. And when Jesus spoke into nothing, according to John 1, 3, it was Jesus. He was the active member of the Trinity who spoke the universe into being. He spoke into nothing. He said, let there be light. And the nothing obeyed and became everything. And we're going to see through this passage that Jesus has powerful teaching authority. He has powerful spiritual authority. He has powerful authority over this this physical world. Because he possesses all authority possesses all authority. So the disruptive demon feared Jesus' power and authority, confessed Jesus' deity, and obeyed his rebuke, which leads to an astonished congregation. So Jesus is teaching. The the demon-possessed person gets up and starts yelling. Jesus rebukes him. The demon throws him on the ground but doesn't hurt him and comes out of him, and the peoples, if already they were astonished, their jaws are on the floor now. (laughs) Verse 36, they were all amazed and said to another, What is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. 
And reports about him went into every place in the surrounding region. Not, not, not no surprise that. Imagine that. You're at church one Sunday morning and somebody gets up possessed with a demon and, and the, the guy's speaking that morning. This wouldn't be me. Just speak, get out of him. The guy falls to the ground, gets fine. Then we just keep going on with the service. That, that would be notable. That would be remarkable. And that's what happened to these people. And the word spread. Again, that, we're back to the main theme in this section back in um, verse 14. The report about him went through all the surrounding country. It's, it's incidents like these. They marveled at the authority and power of his word. Of his, and, and notice how Luke's drawing our attention back and again and again and again. It's not simply his authority and power. Luke wants us to get the idea, if you haven't got it yet, Jesus speaks and there's power. It's the authority and power of his word. Verse 32, they were astonished at his teaching for his word possessed authority. Verse 36, they were amazed and said to one another, what is this word? With authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. So Luke is not simply drawing our attention to the authority and power of Jesus. Jesus has authority and power, amen. Luke wants us to see the authority and power of his word. Why, why might that be important? Because we have Jesus' word here in Scripture, don't we? Don't we? This is the word of God. And we have within the word of God that Jesus speaking, Jesus revealed. And so we have, and God's word has this type of power. This is why the author of Hebrews can say the word of God is active and living, sharper than any two-edged sword, able to divide the thoughts and intentions of man. Because Jesus' word has power and authority. The word spread in all the surrounding region. So, same day, he leaves the synagogue, the, the service is over, and he moves out into the community. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever and they appealed to him on her behalf. He stood over her and rebuked the fever and it left her. Immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now, if you harmonize the Gospels, it's, 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 it's almost certain Jesus has already met Peter. In John chapter one, Jesus meets Peter out in the wilderness by John the Baptist. So Jesus isn't just sort of barging into somebody's house he doesn't know. It's also possible that chapter 5, the account of Peter being called to be a disciple has already occurred. We don't know because chapter 5 begins on one occasion. So Luke isn't telling us necessarily a chronology. He, I think he puts these two Sabbath days in contrast to each other in chapter 4. Here's one example of Jesus in a Sabbath on a synagogue teaching, and here's one response, and this is going to end with a very different response on another Sabbath. But certainly Jesus has already encountered Peter, Peter's already come to some level of faith in Jesus. And, and Jesus is going to heal Peter's mother-in-law. I just want to pause for a second. Um, I, I don't understand the, the doctrine um, in the Catholic Church of, of celibacy of priests. According to them, their very first pope was married, right? Because as far as I know, there's only one way to get a mother-in-law. You with me? There's only one way, there's only one way to get a mother-in-law. Yes? Okay, Peter's married. You can cross-check that with 1 Corinthians 9.5, where Paul references Peter's wife. I, I'd never have understood that. Um, but, but here's Peter, he's married, and we're just gonna see, we're gonna see two things. One, 
notice the compassion of Jesus as he listens to their plea to help her. So we've seen the power, we've seen the authority, and we've seen Jesus earlier in this chapter pick a fight. I mean, he, he absolutely brings the conflict in Nazareth to a head. He takes people who are ambivalent, who are kind of, well, he's got gracious speech, but hey, we grew up with him. And he says, hey, I'm going to tell you what you're thinking. I'm going to tell you what you're asking me. I'm going to say no. And they want to kill him. So we've seen a strength and even maybe a sternness to this Messiah already, haven't we? And we've seen his power. Now we're seeing his love and compassion. Now we're seeing his sympathy. Now we're seeing his approachability. They come to him. Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a high fever. I love how Luke, the physician, notes it's a high fever. This, this story is in, in, in a number of the Gospels, but Luke pays attention to some of these medical details. And they appealed to him on her behalf. And Jesus listens. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. Again, notice it's his word that is accomplishing this. He doesn't, doesn't cast a spell. He doesn't, again, raise his hands over the place. He just speaks. We've seen Jesus' word have authority and power as it teaches people. We've seen Jesus' word have authority and power in the spiritual realm. This is the only actual occurrence I'm aware of in, 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 in the Gospels where Jesus rebukes a disease. He rebukes the fever. <laughs> and it left her, and immediately she rose and began to serve them. And, and, and this is just another pause. There's, there's a lot of people nowadays claiming to be faith healers, claiming to work these types of miracles. And what you see again and again in, in the Scripture, Jesus and his apostles, is, is it's instantaneous and it's full. This woman doesn't feel a little bit better. Okay, I think I can get out of bed. She's so much better. She's able to go from being served to serving. You notice that? She's in bed. People are doing things for her. People are pleading on her behalf. She's being served. And then as soon as Jesus rebukes the fever and speaks to it, she it flips around and she's serving. This is a complete, full, total recovery. And that's one of the hallmarks of Jesus' miracles and the apostles' miracles. It's, it's not her mysterious back pain gets better. The fever goes. She's up. She's serving. He rebukes the fever, and it fully obeys him. He rebukes the fever, fully obeys him. And then we see Jesus heals the sick and oppressed. Now, when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to them. Now, why do you think they waited till the sun was setting? Because it's the Sabbath, right? And the Sabbath ends at sunset. And so for any work, you're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. Well, carrying some of your sick friends, people from outlying towns, you, you don't want to risk working on the Sabbath. So they waited till sunset, and they came to Jesus, and they brought all of their sick to him. And notice the all-inclusive language here. Point one, he fully heals all from all their diseases. And again, Luke draws attention to this. Now, after the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases. Notice this is the all people who had any sick with any disease, not just fevers, not just back pain, any disease brought them to him. And he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. Notice that Jesus took time. I mean, he could just waved at the entire crowd, be healed. And again, notice the approachability, the love, the compassion of our Savior. One by one, Jesus deals with each one of these people individually, one at a time. He lays his hands on every one of them and healed them all. I mean, just marvelous power, marvelous love and attention, marvelous compassion. 
He's approachable. Every single one of these sick, poor peasants, Jesus in turn heals them. And again, this is the hallmark of the genuine, miraculous healing ability. I've, I've met one or two people in my life who've claimed to, have, to, be, to be spiritual healers, and I want to say, let's, let's just go to the infant, the baby cancer ward. Let's, let's just go there and do this, and you win. Now, Jesus' power is authenticated by its totality, all types of disease, all people. We also see some more demons show up. He silenced the demons from speaking of him. Demons also came out of many. Again, Luke distinguishes. He doesn't think all sickness is demonic. He he recognizes there are sick people and some people had demons. And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak of him because they knew that he was the Christ. Now, some people stumble over that. Why on earth would Jesus stop somebody from confessing that he is the Christ? And he doesn't just do that with demons. He does that with other people he healed, tell no one. I think there's a couple reasons why Jesus would would rebuke the demon from confessing him. One, it's not very helpful publicity when the most evil people around are confessing who you are. That's not type of. It's kind of like you know, no one, no no politician wants the KKK backing them, right? That's not the type of support you. Well, not most politicians don't want. (laughs) Most politicians. I got to clarify that one. Most politicians do not want the KKK backing them, because that's not the type of support you want. Uh, and, and I don't think Jesus wants to be heralded by a bunch of witnessing demoniacs. But the second reason is this. Jesus claimed a messiahship, and Jesus is in total control over his mission. We're going to see this in a minute. John's gospel makes this even more clear. But Jesus not only has come to earth to live our life, to preach the good news, but he's come to die. He's come to die. Not only has he come to die, he's come to die on the right day, the day of atonement, the Passover. He's come to die on the day of atonement in the right year, according to Daniel's prophecy. And, and so Jesus has to bring things to a head very carefully. This becomes much more clear in John's gospel if you read through, because it keeps talking about his hour had not yet come, his hour had not yet come. And so I think part of the reason why Jesus is forbidding this clear declaration of his messiahship is this is one of the issues that Jesus, at least publicly, keeps back. If you remember at the, towards the end of Jesus' ministry, the, the scribes and the Pharisees say, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Because he hasn't really plainly told the multitudes. He's told individuals. But Jesus' favorite title publicly to call himself is the Son of Man. And so it's also the issue is it's not quite time to go publicly with I'm the Messiah. That's, that's, I think, why. He doesn't want demons as his primary advocates and, and um, witness. And it's not quite time to go that publicly on this. He, he shows, again, total control. Total control over, over whether it's sickness, any sickness. Total control over demons. Total control and power and authority. This, this is one who is powerful and authoritative. This is also one who beckons and lets people come to him. He can be stern. He can, he can pick a fight earlier in this chapter. And he can let every one, each and every one of the sick, come to him. And he'll touch them and he'll lay his hands on them. And rather than their uncleanness spreading to him, he has contagious holiness. It spreads to them. They're cured. Let me see Jesus in the wilderness. Jesus in the wilderness. And when it was day, next morning, literally at daybreak, he departed and went into a desolate place. 
So Jesus has had a full day the day before. He taught in the synagogue. He dealt with a demon-possessed man there. He left and went to Peter's house. And then at the end of the day, everyone came to him with all their sick. He healed them. He gets up early the next morning at daybreak, and he leaves. That seems odd. Well, the, the, the populace thought it was odd, too. The people sought him, and they found him. And they would have kept him from leaving. It's a very different response from Nazareth, isn't it? In Nazareth, they try to reverse stoning, right? Stoning's when they throw rocks at you. They were gonna throw him at rocks. They're gonna push him down the cliff. And Daniel noticed that that was a reverse stoning. Um, okay, that's kind of clever. But that was the response in Nazareth, right? Here, what are they doing? Stay, don't leave, stay, don't leave. And again, what I find impressive about Jesus is neither man speaking well of him nor men wanting to kill him alters him the slightest iota from his mission. Because what's, what's he say? I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he's preaching in the synagogues of Judea. I mean, this, this is amazingly on point. Jesus must and will fulfill his mission. Jesus must and will fulfill his mission. Doesn't matter whether it's a town that wants to kill him and throw him off a cliff. Doesn't matter if it's a town that everyone leaves the town to find him and say, don't go. Jesus is on mission. Neither threats nor the adoration of men will sway him because as we go back to Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me to proclaim good news to the poor. And he's proclaimed it here. And he's got other places to proclaim it. You know, I sympathize with these people. You know? I, I, I think we all do. But, but how good is it that Jesus doesn't keep his message and his good news in one place? It spreads out. He's got others to tell, others to announce this to. He's on mission. By the way, that phrase, the kingdom of God, this is the first time it shows up in Luke's gospel. It'll show up 31 other times. Major theme in Luke's gospel, the kingdom of God. Now, I don't think yet Luke expects his readers to fully grasp what he means by kingdom of God. At the very least, it means this. We've seen this already. There is a kingdom of this world. In Luke 4, Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. The implication, he's in control of them. And we've seen some of Satan's foot agents, his, his soldiers, on the ground here in chapter 4. And what happens? There's another kingdom that's in breaking that they absolutely yield to. The same way that darkness yields to light. There's no struggle. You turn on the light, the darkness disappears. It leaves. Jesus shows up and he just tells the demons what to do. They obey. The kingdom of God has come. And different principle of power, different authority, and people being freed. You see how this is verifying the testimony? He's announcing good news to the poor. He's setting at liberty captives. We've seen him do that with the demon-possessed. He's giving sight to the blind. He's healing any from all of their affliction. These signs, and Luke wants us to get this. I think that's why he orders them this way. Verify. Now, they're not the primary aspect of Jesus' ministry. Jesus did not heal everybody everywhere. He left plenty of sick people on earth. But he does enough healings, he does enough miracles to prove, I am the one who gives spiritual healing, and I'm the one who sets people from, from spiritual oppression and slavery to free, slavery, slavery from sin free. 
And these miracles verify his claims. They prove it. We'll see that again in chapter 5, where Jesus forgives a man, and the Pharisee stumbles and says, okay, just approved you I have the authority to forgive. Get up and walk. They verify the spiritual claim. But the spiritual claim is a reality. Jesus is the one to gospelize the poor. And Jesus is the one to announce and set free captives. And Jesus is the one to give the sight of the blind. And Jesus is the one to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, we've seen two different reactions, and the challenge for us is how will we respond? Will we recognize that we're the poor, we're the blind, we're the oppressed? And will we receive him and welcome him? Or or will we, like his hometown, stumble over that and, well, you know, not like it? Well, I hope and trust that if you're here this morning, um, that you are those who have come to put their faith in Lord Jesus Christ. If you've never put your faith in Lord Jesus Christ, today be a wonderful day. Today is the day of salvation. We're about now, as we transition into the Lord's table, to partake of a rite that the Lord God gave his people. This is for Christians. You don't need to be a member of this church, but you, you do need to be a Christian. And if you've, if you've received the Lord Jesus, if you've turned from your sins and, and embraced him by faith, we would welcome you to partake of this meal if you haven't, you're not sure where you're at with the Lord, we'd, we'd warn and advise you to withhold. Because um, Paul warns us in 1 Corinthians 11 that we need to examine ourselves. And so to eat the bread and to drink the cup, for anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died, but if we judge ourselves truly, we would not be judged. So this is, a, this is a meal, this is a symbolic meal for Christians. And not just for Christians, but for Christians who've examined themselves. So if, if, you, if your conscience is clean before the Lord, and if you've come to the Lord by faith, partake. And if you have business to do with God, let's pause for a moment for all of us to examine our hearts and do some business with the Lord so that we can come to this table rightly, Truly not eating and drinking judgment on ourselves. Let's just pause and pray. God, we are the poor. We, we are the oppressed. We are the blind. And you sought us while we were your enemies. And while we were hiding in darkness, you caused the light of your gospel to shine on us. And, and you spoke life and light into our hearts and revealed to us the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You remove the veil. You set us free. And Lord, even though you have done that work for us, even though you have healed us and you have freed us and you have adopted us, Lord, again and again and again and again, like a dog returning to its vomit, we, 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 we return from you and we serve other gods like Israel before us. Lord, we confess that. We confess that our hearts have wandered, prone to wander. Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. So, Lord God, here's our hearts. 
Now take and seal them. Seal them for your courts above, Lord. We need you to work a repentance. We need you to work a contrition. We need you to cleanse us from our sin. And we'll be cleansed. So Lord, help us to take this table rightly. I mean, truth and sincerity and not in pretense. Lord God, uh, and if there's any here who does not know you, Lord God, would that you would reveal yourself, that you would remove the veil, that you would speak life and light to dead hearts now. Even now, that there be those who might turn to you in faith. In Jesus' name, amen.